It took all of two weeks for mob outrage to successfully oust Kevin Williamson from his new post at The Atlantic's, get this, new ideas section. So much for diversity. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt is the worst house guest of all time, and by the time this podcast is published, Trump may have already given him the boot, thanks to a series of ethics questions. Also, we interviewed Rose McGowan on Monday, and we'll break that down for you at the end of the episode. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. As tribalism overtakes us all, you'll need it. So shout out to Peter Jones for that awesome new, I guess, what do we call that? Jingle, theme song, whatever. He sent it to us on Twitter. And I don't know, I think it ups our uh, our cool game for this podcast. But Yes, thank you, Peter. Anyways, to break things down for you, uh, today we will get into our Rose McGowan discussion that we had on Monday um, at the end of the show. And if you haven't listened in to that podcast, you should do it. It's episode 13. You can find that on iTunes and SoundCloud. It was a really awesome discussion, and it's just so amazing that it got to happen in kind of this candid and unfiltered setting. But more on that later. Today we are having Rose Kennedy's pouring one out for old Mary Jo it's Kopechny. Kopechny? <laughs> and you're a Democrat, so you don't know this name until now. Whose, whose life and death at the hand of Ted Kennedy is finally getting the recognition it deserves with the new film Chappaquiddick out in theaters today. Anyways, on, on this week's show, we will get into Kevin Williamson hired and then fired from The Atlantic. Uh, Scott Pruitt on obviously thin ice. I mean, as we said in our monologue, he, he might, in fact, be fired as we're speaking right now. And then at the end, Rose McGowan. So let's get right into it. Kevin Williamson, I know there's been outrage on the right with his firing from the Atlantic. Tiana, what's your take? Okay, so I, this is the part where I have to go for full disclosure. I obviously have written for National Review. I interned there full-time over the summer. So just that's the conflict of interest at hand here. I've always loved Kevin's writing and have for a really long time. He's very acerbic and witty and sometimes brutal. But with Kevin, you know what you're buying. So I thought it was a very bold, brave, and ambitious decision for The Atlantic to start this new ideas section. And obviously, it was a pretty wide ideological range in terms of who they were trying to hire. It's on top of... um, Kevin Williamson, it was Alex Wagner, Andy Lowry, uh, Annie Lowry. And I, I, The Atlantic is still one of the most, I think, reputable pieces of journalism that exists today. Uh, all of its long-form pieces, its reporting, its reporters. I've, I've always admired The, the Atlantic. I think it, it, it occupies a pretty honestly centrist position uh, with a wide variety of commentary and, most importantly, really good reporting. So I think that a lot of people are really heartened to see sort of this crossover. And if you haven't read Kevin's writing, Kevin is one of the most anti-Trump people I can possibly know, uh, or I could possibly think of. He, Kevin is an elitist in the most earnest way possible. Um, he's a big believer in move to where the jobs are, don't for lack of a better term, bitch and moan about being in a position where you can't find one. Um, again, like I said, very acerbic, very, very honest, very candid. So the Atlantic knew what they were getting when they hired him. Kevin uh, is very pro-life. He's very Catholic. And that obviously informs his writing. So I think that if the Atlantic w- didn't want someone with deeply Christian beliefs, they shouldn't have hired him. There are tons of other conservatives where religion is not terribly important to informing their commentary or provides more of a backdrop than it does 
you know, specific tonal recommendations. But the Atlantic hired him anyway, and liberal outrage ensued. I'm not even going to actually call it liberal outrage, because true liberalism would be embracing the opportunity to listen to Kevin and debate with him. So the, there, were, there were two main points of grievances that, that the left, I guess I would say, had with, had with the Atlantic hiring Kevin. So one is one of his characterizations in a profile he did of a, governor, of, a, of a gubernatorial race. At the beginning, he's describing some inner city black youth, and he refers to one of the boys as a three-fifths Snoop Dogg, which obviously is something that... I understand why, if you're a person of color, why this would come across as a dog whistle. But again, people make faux pas in their writing. I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could glean through the thousands of words I've written. In well, front of he him. also described an African American child. Uh, this is a quote that the New York Times had in their piece: "The universal gesture of a primate territorial challenge." And again, and again, I, I do understand why, if you're a person of color, why why you would take offense to this. And I'm not saying that it's totally right. But again, people. Kevin writes. Kevin write. Kevin would write what twelve thousand words a week. So it, it makes sense that there would be a couple of faux pas here and there. That being said, so that was one of them. But the major thing that you had Jessica Valenti and Brianna Wu shrieking about endlessly for two weeks on the internet was the fact that Kevin, in a few tweets and in a podcast, had discussed that not only does he think that abortion should be illegal, he thinks that the crime for obtaining or helping someone procure an abortion should be capital punishment by hanging. This is something that, while I am pro-life, I strongly disagree with, mainly because, one, I am not a fan of the death penalty, and two, I think that abortion is, I mean, it more to do with the providers than has to do with the women. I don't think women should be prosecuted for getting abortions. I mean, I've already discussed this at length. I don't even think that it's very effective to make abortion illegal. I don't think it makes it go away. I think that there are a lot better ways to encourage people to take proactive decisions and make adoptions easier. But that's just my take. But the point being... These are not things that were terribly hard to find. You knew what you were getting with Kevin. Kevin's open about the fact that he was adopted um, and was born three months before Roe v. Wade was decided on. So obviously he sees abortion as a very personal issue, knowing that he could have been aborted. Um, and yes, it was his prescription for death by hang or for capital punishment by hanging a bit visceral, probably more emotionally charged than I like? Definitely. But if the Atlantic knew that, and if you have this deeply entrenched pro-choice philosophy, wouldn't you want the opportunity to debate him? Because the fact is, there are people who actually believe this. So isn't it so much better to take someone who is, I think, one of the best writers of her generation? Wouldn't you want to have the opportunity to debate him? And that's sort of my central grievance with this. But I think The Atlantic went into the hiring process with him, with that kind of good faith ideal in mind, in that... You know, Jeffrey Goldberg, the magazine's editor-in-chief, defended him and his tweets because when, when they were initially in the hiring process with Williamson, the left and liberals were outraged that The Atlantic would even be trying to hire him because he's tweeted, obviously, that his beliefs that women should be hung for getting abortions and be charged with, you know, premeditated homicide and everything else. And Jeffrey Goldberg defended Williamson saying he wasn't going to judge people for their worst tweets or assertions in isolation. That's a direct quote from him. And so I think the Atlantic knew what they were getting into in that regard, accepted that. And I think praise to them to a certain degree for 
wanting to, despite, you know, a a large base of their readers are liberals and people on the left, and despite kind of this outroar from their base, they said, no, screw that, I'm going to still hire this person because it's important to have a diversity in views. I think they went into it with the right mindset. However, I think that despite them knowing Williamson, they probably didn't prepare and didn't really foresee kind of almost the PR nightmare that would ensue for them after his hiring because it is difficult when he goes out and, I mean, the quote from the uh, the Atlantic's editor-in-chief was that he used very callous language in regards to abortion and hanging, and it's it's those statements become tough to defend when the perception of them is that they're coming from more of a hateful and heated mindset rather than one rooted in knowledge in empirical facts and kind of a rational basis because there's there's a fine line and there's a difference tiana and i we may debate abortion on this show we may debate other issues but we try to come at those from a rational mindset one that doesn't inflict a lot of like personal biases but rather we can formulate arguments that are based in facts and portray those, regardless if we agree with them or not, we can see where each other are coming from. And they're not meant to be malicious. I think where Williamson crossed the line is when those got perceived as more malice rather than an intellectual argument that was meant for debate. Because when they come off as, I don't know what the right word is, when they come off as, I guess, more attacking than anything, attacking women or attacking the topic in general or those who are against it, I think there's when people get their backs up and then the Atlantic had to make a tough call. I mean, okay, the issue to me is less the fact that the fact that 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 those comments were seen as the line because I mean that on its own the first amendment doesn't mean that you have a right to be paid to be published in a very prestigious magazine, obviously not. For me the thing that's particularly egregious is the double standard. You have Ruth Marcus, the Pulitzer Prize-winning commentator, wrote in the pages of the Washington Post about how aborting down fetuses, Down syndrome fetuses, is a good thing. I mean, for uh, for a certain subset of the population, myself included, that's a pretty terrifying thing to think that it's a normative good to abort a fetus with Down syndrome. But did she come at it from an adversarial perspective, or did she come at it with saying? This is my thought. This is why I think this this may be kind of like a Looney Tunes idea. I think idea, advocating to kill a fetus with Down syndrome is already coming at an adversarial position towards the fetus with Down syndrome. Okay, but advocating to hang women is coming at an adversarial position as well. So, so okay, so 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 my thing is, I'm not saying Ruth Marcus should have been fired. If anything, I think this is an important thing that that conservatives need to wake up and realize that there is a genocide of babies with Down syndrome going on across the world. You know, and I think that it's important that we see what these viewpoints are. And and how people who advocate for that position think. But what I'm saying is it's okay to have a crazy viewpoint as long as you're backing that up with facts and as long as you're explaining yourself in, like, a good-hearted nature. And that's where people cross the line. I mean, I haven't read that specific piece that you're referencing, so there's no way for me to tell if she was coming at it from just, like, a crazy viewpoint and was saying anyone who doesn't abort a child with Down syndrome is messed up and they should be jailed, then... That's cause for concern. So you're saying like the line should then be more style. It, it has to. It has to come at what angle and your your angle and delivery. Because if if he really believes that, you know, aborting a fetus should be like women should be charged with homicide. Sure, not my viewpoint. But if you give me factual a factual basis for your and your and logical reasoning, then I can't really attack you as a person or your character. Because I, under, I can understand where you're coming from, at least. 
And so that's, that's the fine line in journalism, I think, because it's tough. I mean, and it's a tough call on the editor. I, 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 it's, it's a tough decision. I don't agree with NR's angle on this. I agree that people definitely can be outraged with his firing, but I don't think I agree with NR's angle that it's a cowardly call from the Atlantic, blah, 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 blah. Like, he should not have been fired whatsoever. I think they can be angry about it because they can say people shouldn't be silenced, whatever you want to say, but I think there also has to be critique within the right. And, and if this happens on the left, there has to be critiques within the left saying okay, you know what, maybe he did come at this argument not in the best but, okay, way, but, didn't deliver but, it in the best way. But do you understand there are two issues here? They're, they're, you're, you're conflating two issues. One which I agree with you on, and one in which I totally don't. So I think, as I'm going to start off with what, I agree, with what I agree with you on. I agree that Kevin's angle is not the best to win people over. I, th- I think it's good catharsis. I think it's a logical opinion. It's not like it's like this totally irrational opinion that has no basis in fact. I just don't. I just think like the delivery in terms of like trying to win people over to the conservative argument may not be the most effective way. I think a lot of people hear that sort of tone and they think, oh, oh, I don't know how much I like like the like the anger underneath the policy. Which again, you can understand if you look at Kevin's background. But that's one thing, and I will openly criticize that. I'll openly say this is not a good people. This is not a good way to win people over. As conservatives, we need to show passion or compassion for women, especially ones who find themselves pregnant. Which I think you should have that, known by taking this job with the Atlantic. Okay, which okay, so so that's one thing. One thing is one thing is conservatives need to be willing to criticize, and I think you already have seen a lot of that. You know, you see someone like S.C. Cup talking about how conservatives really do need to abandon the idea of like the death penalty, and that our our administration of justice cannot just be pure catharsis. But then, okay, so that's one issue. I agree with you on that. This, but but the, the broader issue that you're conflating with it, which I think is incorrect, is the idea that, that, that the Atlantic caving to mob rule was not cowardly. It was cowardly. If you read any of Kevin's writing, he makes no secret that he believes in elitism. He makes no secret that he believes that there are shithole counties in America. He makes no secret that he is this ardently pro-life and views abortion as a moral evil. He makes no secret of that. So if, if they didn't want those those positions outlined in the Atlantic or outlined or, or represented in the way that Kevin tends to represent them, which is provocatively and unabashedly, then they just should have hired him. I am scared that we are moving slowly towards this point where everything is controlled by mob rule, where if you just scream loudly enough and for long enough that you can wipe off ideas off of the main stage. And and quite literally, this is how you got Trump. Quite literally. Because a lot of these positions about immigration, a lot of these positions about economics were not being represented in the mainstream media. And so you had this quiet brewing of this, I'm not going to call it a silent majority because it wasn't a majority, but you had this silent plurality. And it was, I mean, there were obviously multiple factors why Trump won. Mainly, I would I would say Hillary Clinton. But you did have this silent plurality of people who thought, no, I want a, I want a wall. I yeah. don't want an influx of millions and millions of refugees and immigrants. Yeah, no. And I, so, so I'm just saying that we got Trump by not listening and deconstructing and fighting with those points. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. So, on, yeah. I don't disagree with you on your points there. Okay. Because the thing is, I, like, as I already said, the, like, the Atlantic, obviously, and as you've said, the Atlantic knew what Kevin Williamson was about. He's had this long career as a journalist and a writer. Yes, they know they knew what they were getting themselves into. What I think is difficult from kind of a realistic point of view and, and putting myself in myself in the shoes of the editor in chief is that 
I don't think he was expecting this backlash. And at the end of the day, the Atlantic is a business. And it's tough because you don't, we don't want to see mob rules, right? Because I would love to see a diversity of, of views. Of course, both of us, everyone knows our beliefs on having a diverse profile of views and stances and, and everything. But what do you do when the main base of your readers are fighting back to this extent? Because do you let the business go down with it on the basis of just like, integrity and saying well "Well, we knew what we were getting into and and hired him because that's not the way it's going to work you have investors you have everyone else like you have to make a corporate decision i think there are different ways that the atlantic could have handled it and see and and they could have tried different things first and see and saw and i guess chose to look at if that appeased the public and appeased kind of their their readership base they could have come out with a public statement saying while we do not endorse kevin williamson's views on abortion we still believe as a publication that it is integral to be able to have a diversity in views. And so while our endorsement of Kevin, like this is not a direct endorsement of Kevin Williamson, we aren't going to fire him on that basis. They could have tried that. I think maybe they jumped the gun on firing him. Uh, but now we, we'll never know if that would have worked. I just think it's just, it's such a shame. It sets a really, really, really dangerous precedent. And obviously there are websites like National Review that, they have a diversity of opinions on the right. You have a place like Mother Jones that has a diversity of opinions on the left. Yeah. They don't pretend to be they don't pretend to, to be nonpartisan publications, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you are actually committing yourself to breaking barriers, I like do they do they just want a straw man conservative who I mean, do they want a Jennifer Rubin? That, well, that, if that, they wanted that, question. they hired the wrong guy. Then then they shouldn't because if that's what they want, then they could have hired a Jennifer Rubin. But if, if if they actually wanted a rigorous intellectual discussion, I don't think showing that you'll cave to Jessica Valenti's tweet storms sets, I don't know, a very good precedent for the for your for a commitment to ideas and facts and openness and really liberalism rather than just cowering to petty boycotts. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because we'll never know what went on inside corporate. You don't know if the initial response was to put out a statement saying that they don't endorse Kevin Williamson's views on that topic. Uh, We don't know if one of the investors is just extremely pro-choice and said, if you don't fire this guy, I'm going to, you know, take out my investment or I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. So it's really, it's tough to understand the inner workings of, of what resulted in that decision because, in my opinion... I mean, definitely the editor in, editor-in-chief of the Atlantic is not a dumb person. They they have they obviously extremely vetted Kevin Williamson and read his pieces and knew his stances on things. So it wouldn't be my opinion that they would hire him and then two weeks later all of a sudden have this massive change of heart because nothing really changed in or terms of his stances. Or they were just scared of the mob rule. And I, so I think I mean it's Occam's razor, right? Yeah. The most logical explanation is the one that makes the fewest assumptions. And in this case, it seems as though they just, they quite literally cowered to mob rule. And I think that is an extreme shame. And, I mean, we're already seeing, like, the New York Times has stood pretty firm about its edition of Brett Stevens, Barry Weiss. Um, but even then, you know, there's so much continual, all these HuffPo, like, thought pieces and just these, like, leaked transcriptions from within the staff. And props to the New York Times for withstanding all of that. 
Props to the New York Times editorial board for committing themselves to providing an honest and wide range of facts. And then you have someone, you have somewhere like the Washington Post that is willing to go to many extremes. They have every, they have Elizabeth Brunig, who's who who's who's an open socialist. And I think that's good for America for us to know what we are fighting. It is impossible to campaign against Donald Trump if you do not understand why people are voting for him. Absolutely. And I, I just, I mean, like, really, Brianna Wu and the like, they're just shooting themselves in the foot by doing this. But it is dangerous. And, and when I was, what, a sophomore in college, when I started the tab um, at USC, sort of as, like, a rival to the Daily Trojan, I mean, it was... A lot of it, and and I received a lot of flack for that. A lot of flack because people don't like whenever you disrupt the world order. And I was, it was seen as this like, oh, is this like this like conservative site? Which is ironic because I was the only conservative on staff. All my writers, I'm pretty sure, voted for Hillary. Um, but 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 we were just willing to be heterodox. And now that is heretical. And we we bitch and moan so much about campus crazies. Because when you become so accustomed to not hearing opposing viewpoints, that manifests itself in the real world. It's not just college. You need to get used to hearing stuff you're not comfortable with when you are young. Otherwise, it transfers into the adult world. And what happens when all these, I don't even want to call them SJWs, what happens when people who are intolerant to free speech then start elevating up the post and start controlling our media? What happens to our discourse then? Do we just let horrible things that need I mean it's like sunlight is the best disinfectant and in this case I mean obviously like I aligned probably 95% with Kevin Williamson versus 5% with Jessica Valenti so I'm not saying it's something that needs to be disinfected but if you're on the left wouldn't you think sunlight is, is the best disinfectant I mean I think the same question can be addressed to both sides because I think both sides are guilty of it and I think, to be honest, if you look on Twitter uh, from various politicians and and political commentators, you see a lot of the accusations coming from the right to the left saying left liberal media is trying to silence the right, like uh, the rights of the right wings um, to be able to say their political viewpoints, where I think that happens on both sides. Um, I don't think National Review is ever going to have a socialist on their on their board, right? Or on no, their, on their no. writing staff. And so I think with all publications and all news sites, there needs to be a greater effort made. And I think with the Atlantic trying to establish themselves in, you know, a stronger foothold, this was the wrong call in terms of if you're going to try to express a diversity of views, maybe in terms of a business decision, don't go so to such a polarizing figure right away they could have picked so many other people and then gradually broadened their spectrum of like who they have on staff but they didn't do that but the but if they chose not to do that then you got to try to stick by it for longer than two weeks for longer than two weeks because what message does that send but then again i just i think both sides need to do a better job of not attacking the other for silencing each other's views and just work together because i don't think when the right criticizes the left for silencing the right, that that's really going to make the left more willing to open those doors and open their ears to hear to hearing things from the right. Because when, you, when you're being criticized from someone, of course you're not going to really want to listen to what they have to say. And I think the same thing goes vice versa. I mean, it feels like this like untenable situation. I think it's made everyone a lot more tribal as a result. It, 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 this is what, like This is how you sort of promulgate this idea of like, oh, conservatives 
like, this is how you promulgate conservatives saying the mainstream media is fake news, the mainstream media hates you, and this is how you promulgate liberals further building the bubbles um, and these insular just echo chambers that allow Trump to win. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's kind of an untenable situation, but I'm glad that we at least have some common ground. So, <laughs> Yeah, no helpful. kidding. Um, well, let's move on to Scott Pruitt, another polarizing figure, to say the least. Uh I don't know. I think I think Trump's going to fire him. We will see what happens. But basically, there's been just crazy things that have come out about Scott Pruitt ever since his time under the Trump administration and the EPA. Uh, there has been many claims against him for bad use of taxpayer dollars in terms of spending that money to for first class travel to unnecessary places and unnecessary Plus raises, unnecessary like first class travel to begin with, <coughs> raises for himself. There apparently is an addition to his office of a soundproof telephone booth. I mean, I just don't know what this guy's doing. And then the latest thing is, I guess he basically took advantage of the people that were renting him a bedroom in their in their condo in Washington. It was originally a six-month lease. He was supposed to be living out of his suitcase in this bedroom of this family's condo in Washington, which I don't even know why he'd be doing that in the first place. Clearly, he's making enough money at the EPA where he could afford his own place, especially with all the raises he's giving himself. But basically, he was spending $50 a month, sorry, $50 a night renting this condo room from this family. And then once the six months were up, he just wouldn't leave. Or six weeks, yeah. Or, or six weeks. What? Six weeks or six months? Six weeks. Six he basically, weeks. He basically squatted in these people's... This story's insane. And and so he wouldn't leave. They kept trying to drop hints. Then they got a little more aggressive and said that they would be changing the locks, everything else. And this guy just wouldn't leave. So the story's come out and Trump has tweeted his support for Scott Pruitt. I know Trump's chief of staff wants him gone, according to rumors, but... I don't know. This is just a crazy situation. I mean, this is this is an actual quote from this is an actual line from Eliana Johnson's Politico story today. The Hearts, the people who were renting out, eventually told Pruitt, who had to be reminded repeatedly to pay his rent, that they had plans to rent the room to someone else, and that he needed to find another place to live. According to people familiar with the events, they also informed him in early August they were changing the locks on their door. So it he got was, to that point. It, yeah, this is. I mean. Okay. And this is the guy who's head of the EPA. I just, like, I don't I don't understand, one, why he would even be wanting to rent a bedroom from someone else's condo, and two, why he would just, like, simply violate his lease agreement that way. So... He can clearly get his own place in Washington, and wouldn't he want his own place? It just absolutely makes no sense. What, what do you think? Nothing burger, or do you think Pruitt's out? I think... You know, it depends who has Trump's ear right now. If Trump is running completely autonomous, I think Pruitt's in. But if he's feeling like he wants to actually listen to someone today, which rarely happens, then I think he's out. But then again, I think it might require more people coming forward with allegations of kind of nefarious usage of taxpayer dollars and government funds. And and we'll see what happens. I think uh, I think there's going to be more coming out against Pruitt, to say the least. I mean, as it stands, I say nothing, Burger. I mean, I think it's a lot of smoke, no fire right now. Not because I think this is a responsible use of taxpayer funds, from what I'm saying. I mean, as a conservative, I'm deeply disgruntled that EPA, like, honestly wastes as much as it does. But this is really nothing new. Obama's EPA wasted tons and tons and tons of money 
there is clearly some sort of court of coordination here because they see a window of opportunity to oust Pruitt. Honestly, on the list of things Trump is doing, this one does not, or, or things related to the Trump White House, this one outrages me the least. It looks like the White House is looking into it. I would so much rather the media continue to discuss how much, how much of a burden Trump's tariffs and Trump's trade war is putting on his base specifically than focus on whether or not Scott Pruitt is is the world's worst house guest, which it's so, so it seems. I'm, I'm not saying it seems like, oh, like Scott Pruitt, like, did nothing wrong. I just, I just don't think this matters. Well, I care less about Scott Pruitt's lease agreement because that's a personal it's just civil like dispute. An civil dispute he can, you know, clear up with the pertinent parties. However, what I do definitely care about, and I think what all Americans should care about who pay taxes, is the use of taxpayer dollars in a illegitimate manner. And from what I've read, and I think from what the rapport is of this guy in Washington. He is kind of the epitome of a Washington swamp monster, uh, to quote Scaramucci. But that that can't really... I don't think people should really stand for that. And so I don't think anyone who pays taxes in this country wants to see this guy getting all these special perks and this first-class travel that's unnecessary on their dime. This could be used to far better subjects and for far better purposes. And so that's something that I think definitely needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, when it comes, I don't know. It is the swamp. Like, no, like, I, I, is it bad that like none of this just like really surprises me anymore? I think, I mean, I think it makes sense that it doesn't surprise us anymore. But then again, just because something is what it is doesn't mean that it shouldn't be changed. Yeah, no, I mean that's fair. It just doesn't feel like it. It. I don't. I like. I. I do think a lot of this is motivated by the fact that Pruitt has been rolling back so many of Obama's regulations to great effect. Um, but the thing is, Trump loves this guy. Pruitt is a total. Well, Trump, Trump loves bro. this guy because he is following Trump's agenda of yeah. just taking away Obama's legacy. Yeah, I mean, but also, I mean, removing regulations that have strangled the economy. You know, I mean, like you can look at it both ways. Trump is a bit of a Schadenfreude guy, so I think a lot of it does have to do with like removing the Obama legacy. I mean, but, 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 he, but it's but called the faith. Environmental Protection Agency, and I think when you're rolling back regu- regulations that protect the environment, that's kind of the antithesis to the job title. And so that's something that I would like to see action taken against, but do I think it's going to happen? No. Anyways, speaking of changing up the system, we obviously, I mentioned it earlier in the show, we did get to speak to Rose McGowan this week, which was amazing that it was able to happen. Uh, Tiana and I got to do kind of a one-on-one or I guess two-on-one interview with her (laughs) at her Airbnb. She was here in LA for a few days uh, doing some stuff for her documentary. And yeah, it was just a really awesome conversation. I think it was amazing being able to kind of catch her in such an unfiltered and candid moment. I think one of the advantages of our show is that obviously we don't belong to any huge media corporation and therefore... We I can pretty much ask ask whatever we want and say we don't need to worry about about pissing off some executive or something. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, Tiana, what, what what were kind of your takes from our conversation with her? So, I've lived in Southern California my for all of my life, save for one year that I lived in France, and I've spent I would say half of my time in LA. She's one of like the realest, famous people I've ever met. That was, like, she's stunningly authentic. 
um, so gracious, very kind. I think it's funny if you if, if you haven't already listened to her interview, tonally, I don't want to call it calm because calm makes it sound like there wasn't passion. It was very impassioned. But, I mean, she is someone who, I mean, Rose makes no secret of the fact that obviously she is pro- pretty left-wing in her politics. And the fact that when I met her outside of that bar in Hollywood, I mean, I, I said, like, I'm a conservative. I host a podcast with a liberal co-host. Like, your activism has been very inspiring for both of us. And she was still, like, willing to come onto the show. So, I mean, she's, so she clearly, and, and at the end of it, um, when we were wrapping up everything, um, it was interesting because I was like, you know, like, thank you. Like, I think, it, like, I, I'm really glad that, like, even though we have, like, different, like, political beliefs, we can come together and show that caring about humanity and caring about civil rights is something that doesn't need to be a partisan issue. And she just said, it doesn't matter what your politics are. What matters is that you, I believe her term was, was, was believe in freedom and believe in power. And I think that's so true. Um, it's, it's definitely not like a political discussion, although I'm glad that we were able to talk about policy sort of at the end, but it really just, it, it, it's honestly sickening and horrifying to think like the entire time we were talking about everything with her, I was just thinking it took someone with the gall and the strength of Rose McGowan to take down the system. It takes bravery. Doing the right thing is hard. It is easy to not ask tough questions. It's easy to hear a rumor here, rumor there, and just be like, I'm just not going to pry. I'm not going to poke into it. It is so hard to stand up to Mossad agents, you know, spies, private investigators. And and she did it. And that's something that I think I I, I still just, it's still very, I don't know, overwhelming just to think. I think the takeaway, if you do listen to the conversation that we got to have with her, which I would encourage everyone to just because it it is a rare moment where you can find someone of her status, her, her celebrity status, so candid and so forthright with her comments. So I think it's important for everyone to hear. But one main takeaway that I have is that, and I think it speaks to the fact that she was so interested and willing to come on our show, despite the fact that we have a diversity in political views. And I think often women on the left get characterized as just hardcore lefties that hate conservatives. And, and that's not the case. I mean, Tiana was the one that developed this connection with Rose and and made this relationship and, and made this happen. And so I think that speaks for itself. But I think one takeaway is that as women, regardless of partisanship, it's important to stick together um, and, and stand behind women's issues because those aren't partisan. And, and and women's rights, I don't think, should be partisan at all. No. And I think for men listening to this, regardless of your partisanship, if you're a Democrat or if you're a Republican, the same thing needs to happen in that regardless of partisanship, everyone should be championing championing for women's rights. Take pro-life, pro-choice out of the picture. But when we're, when we're talking about sexual harassment, sexual assault, any kind of sexism of any nature um, in regards to gender pay gap or any of that— that's not a partisan issue. That's a human issue. And I think as human beings, but especially as women, because I, I see this nastiness in the media. When you look on the right from whether it be political commentators on the left or political commentators on the right, they're attacking each other and attack each other's political views in an educated debate. Fine. But don't attack each other on the human portion of the arguments. Yeah, because it's like you can have, so for instance, I know one of the things like Me Too Truthers will always talk about is like due process and this idea that like Me Too is going to lead to tons of innocent men being victimized, whatever. Okay. So we can have the conversation of policy. We can have the conversation of 
do campus tribunals cause men in mass to be falsely accused of horrible crimes? That's fine. We can have that policy discussion. But the policy discussion is completely independent of, of, of the matter is rape something that is systemic, historically prevalent, and continues to, and, and continues even in the most developed privileged societies. Yes. And you can show compassion and show humanity for that. And you can talk about these very specific systems like Hollywood, you know, like I think areas of academia, um, clearly Washington, even though that's not something that's discussed as much, that that sexual assault and harassment are things that happen and that do need to be discussed, both from a social perspective, both on how do we teach our sons and our daughters, or how do we teach our sons to ask for consent and to show respect, and how do we teach our daughters to demand it, you know? That is an independent conversation from the policy, because obviously, like, there are a lot of things when it comes to, like, like the gender wage gap where I can go economisty on people and talk about why certain aspects of their analysis are wrong, you know, and still show compassion and still show that, that the human angle is a social conversation, not a policy conversation. And just, I, I, I really like the way that I, Rose is just a very, very, very interesting think, thinker. She's obviously so intelligent. And if you've if you've read her book, her, her life story is quite amazing. She spent very little time in formal education and is one of the smarter people that I've met. Um, but but I think that her ability to uh, not compartmentalize, because compartmentalize, I feel like has such a negative connotation, but separate the social from the political and assess what they are and assess like, I mean, Hollywood wasn't a legal institution. As she said, like, the only the only people with the power to oversee Hollywood is Washington, and they didn't, you know? That was purely social. That was purely banking on the fact that people wouldn't say anything, that people wouldn't ask tough questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is something that, I mean, policies will help, but, but there just needs to be a greater cultural conversation. There needs to be a bigger, I don't know, social indictment of bad behaviors, and I, that was that was very heartening. Yeah, and I think what needs to be made abundantly clear is that at its core, the Me Too movement is not leftist; it is nonpartisan. And so, those on the right should not be weary of supporting, I guess, the intrinsic nature of the Me Too movement and what it stands for. Yeah. And I think you kind of do see that. I guess backlash that backlash or hesitation from the yeah. right to get on board because i think it's from ju- members of the right from members yeah. from members yeah. of the right but because i think it so happens that a lot of these women that have come forward like the faces of the me too movement a rose mcgowan anyone else happen to be democrats and happen to be outspoken democrats but that doesn't mean that the movement is democratic and it doesn't mean that the movement is leftist it just means that people who are prominent figures in the movement happen to be a Democrat. But from our conversation with Rose and what you just said, Tiana, in that there's an ability to separate the social and the political, people need to understand that. And members members from the right, I hope, I hope you understand that. And I hope that you can get on board with, at its core, what the movement is about and its intrinsic nature is nonpartisan. And I think that's something that everyone can get on board with because it's a social issue. It's not a political partisan issue. Yeah. And I mean... It would be unwise for us on the right to let the left hijack this and turn this into, like, the next women's march. Because, again, I've, I've, I've reiterated this point on plenty of podcasts. My grievances with the women's march is that it's not just about women. It's also about Palestine. It's also about universal health care and all these other things that I think are not women's issues. They're just political issues. 
With the Me Too movement, it is specifically about assault and harassment. Exactly. Gender-based assault and harassment. And, and, and still, you have men who are coming out as, as Terry Crews. You know, like, you have men who are coming out and, like, empowered by Me Too. People, men who have been victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault in Hollywood. So I just think, why let this moment go to waste? Especially because it's very unique when you look at kind of the there's there's the three big political movement movements and demonstrations going on currently. It's it's the women's march, it is March for Our Lives, and it's Me Too. And so Women's March, yeah, One you can make the argument not like the other. Yeah, you can make the argument women's march is partisan. March for our lives, definitely partisan. Yeah. But Me Too is not, so let's not lump it into the same category and mindset as those other two. And so, therefore, I would like to see men and women, both from the left and right, getting on board with this and not politicizing it in the nature of partisanship, but politicizing it in the nature of something needs to be done. And so that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, so, I mean, if we didn't convince you already, check out episode 13. Um, but we are going to get on with our weekend and... I mean, maybe when we'll come back next week, Scott Pruitt will yeah, be I mean, fired. We'll see. Twitter, we, we it doesn't look like he's fired yet, so you know. Well, we made our predictions, so now uh, you guys can quote us on them. Um, but yeah, as always, uh, feel free to toss us a subscribe, like, or follow on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Uh, you can find us by searching The Political Pregame. Also, uh, check out our website, thepoliticalpregame.com, and then both of our Twitter accounts if you have any comments or concerns or just anything you'd like to hear us talk about. It's at Tiana the First and at Avery Hogarth. And as always, thank you guys so much. <laughs>